The universe has good news for the lost, lonely, and heartsick. The sugars are here, speaking straight into your ears. I'm Steve Allman. I'm Cheryl Strayed. This is Dear Sugars. Oh, dear son, won't you please Share some little sweet days with me Dear Sugars, my boyfriend and I met at a wedding about six months ago. Upon meeting, we had this insane connection. He gets me, I get him. Oftentimes we say we're literally the same person. My boyfriend has struggled with addiction to pain medications off and on for a couple of years. When he told me, I did two things. I accepted his past, and I was very firm about where I stand on the issue given that I have a two-year-old son, who means more to me than any man ever will. My boyfriend promised me that his addiction was behind him. Two months ago, I began noticing behavioral changes. I ignored them despite the feeling in the pit of my stomach. I knew something wasn't right. I don't have trust issues in general, but one night about a month ago, I had the urge to go through my boyfriend's phone while he was outside. And there it was, someone communicating with him about how many prescription pills they had and how much they would sell them for. I confronted my boyfriend, and after a harsh and intense conversation, he stopped using pills. Or I think he has. Since then, he's enrolled in classes at our local college, and I can see him making progress for his future. I've not suspected that he's been high since then either. My question for you is this. Do I stay in this relationship? How do I continue to be in it when I constantly suspect he might be lying to me? I want to put this behind us. I want a future with him. But I also have to ask myself if I'm crazy for giving him a second chance, especially since I have a son in the mix. Please help. Signed, Dating an Addict. So today we're going to talk about what it's like to be in a relationship, particularly a romantic relationship, Mm -hmm. with somebody who is an addict, either an addict who is active in their addiction or an addict who is in recovery but maybe still struggling. And as we've come to learn about about addiction, a lot of times, even if somebody has good intentions and wants to stay clean or stay sober, uh, they fail at that. And another thing we know about addiction is deceit goes along with it. Right? Have you ever been in a relationship with an addict? I haven't been in a romantic relationship with an addict, but in a close friendship. And the strange thing to realize, because my friend was exhibiting behaviors that just I knew to not be the way that he behaved, lying, you know, a certain kind of lying and duplicity. And it put me in the position, this is, I love, Cheryl thought of this title for this episode, A Spy in the House of Love. That is what I started to feel like, mm-hmm. that I wasn't just a friend, I was also engaged in surveillance. Absolutely, me too. Uh, it was when I was in my late 30s, one of my best, closest female friends became a crack addict. And it was it was so astonishing, I guess, that, that there was this naive part of me that thought, well, you know, this is something you do in your youth. You know, you fall into it in your 20s or something. Right. And she was at this point like 40, and, and I had a front row seat 
to her downfall, essentially. You know, mm. she, the way she went from being my friend to being, as you say, Steve, this other person uh, who, I, who I knew she wasn't. Somebody who was lying and manipulating and, you know, borrowing money from people and yep. not paying it back, not yep. following through evading yep. and avoiding. Mm-hmm. And it, it brought up all kinds of things for me. Uh, you know, that sense of betrayal, that sense of taking it personally as, as you can do. When, when you see an addict acting in these ways, I think, you know, for me, it was a big lesson to learn. This isn't her, it's her addiction. Yeah, I mean, it, it really what we're describing, I, I, I think of it as like an evil tenant. You know, it's a, we call it addiction, but it's a kind of possession. Um, and th- the struggle that we're going to engage with in, with these letter writers and, and lots of other letters that have come into our inbox is, what do I do when I am in love with and, and maybe even married to or committed to somebody who has become possessed? Dear Sugars, if the national opioid epidemic statistics are correct— then I suspect you get many questions about how to handle a partner who has a drug addiction. You are right, we do. I am now in that boat myself, and my life has gone from coasting on a gentle current, my life before this marriage, to the strong of my partner's addiction, in which my metaphorical boat oscillates violently between 10-story waves cresting the good times and the stinking watery muck of below sea level, the bad times. Drama a term I once used only when talking about my teenage students, has now become a predominant descriptor of my daily life as my husband of five years battles a seemingly endless cycle of addiction. All people who have addicted family members learn over time about lying, not just a lie here and there about whether or not the person is using, but rather Gordian tangles of lies upon lies intertwined with denials, obfuscations, promises, omissions, exaggerations, and spins. I can't tell you how many times I've asked my addict husband a question point blank only to have him answer looking me right in the eye with a bald-faced lie followed by, I swear to God. Recently, I was confronted with several clues that my spouse was once again using heroin or some other opiate and perhaps even selling other drugs in order to support his habit. All the clues pointed to that conclusion, buying a new car, say what? Empty pill bottles cashed in basement drawers, leaving work early, feeling less back pain than usual, snoring loud at night, nodding off on the couch once or twice, and then the kicker, a conflict with his friend, also an addict, who emailed me that he had an earful to tell me about what my spouse had been up to recently and all the lies he had been telling me to cover up his heroin use. The friend said he had the text to back up the claims if I wanted them. Uh Uh-oh, I thought, here we go again. The night after I received this friend's email, lo and behold, my spouse nodded off on the couch again. Later in bed, he had a violent, feverish shaking event in which his teeth were literally chattering audibly and his body temperature rose drastically. When he did sleep, he did so fitfully and with an odd body posturing I have come to recognize as one of my spouse's tells. He also began to hiccup, one of the odder signs of withdrawal from opiates. It seemed safe to assume at this point that my spouse was withdrawing, and this prompted me to get up in the middle of the night, take his cell phone, sit down in a locked room until I had gone through every contact, every email, every text, and every call log I could find. 
In my mind, the egregious invasion of my spouse's privacy was trumped by the lies he had told me and also the fact that ultimately, my aim is to help my husband stay alive and healthy. There were some pretty odd texts and call logs in there, and I felt sure that my instincts had been correct. But the next morning, when I confronted my husband about the information I'd gathered, he was full of righteous anger and vehemently and convincingly denied many of the accusations. And the pinnacle was... He was no longer showing signs of withdrawal. We even took a urine test to confirm what was currently in his system, and there was nothing but Suboxone, the drug that combats opiate addiction. It seems I was, well, wrong. I am now suffering panic attacks and very high stress. The anxiety punctuates my otherwise wonderful and fulfilling life with insanity. Lying is clearly part of addiction. But when a partner whom you love very, very much lies to you vehemently to the point where you simply can never know when the person is telling you the truth, even when he actually is telling you the truth, is it justified to violate that person's privacy, like a lot, even when you know you will sometimes not be accurate in your conclusions? I think the admittedly patronizing and distasteful detective work is a necessary evil when I observe actual symptoms of addiction. After all, I've tried my best to commit to this person for life in spite of his epic struggle with addiction. Other spouses and long-term girlfriends, and there have been many, have thrown up their hands and left. My spouse is really angry about both the accusations and the snooping and has told me to leave him alone with regards to going through his stuff. I love him, and I want him to stay clean and sober like he was when we met. I know I have the option to just leave this marriage, but I love this person very much, and I want to win this awful war with opiates somehow. Signed, feeling like a snoop and a dog. Wow. Yeah, I mean, Cheryl, you know, I don't know how you feel about this, but I feel like, you know, reading the first letter is almost like, you know, add a few years and we might be, that first letter writer might be writing us the second letter. Yeah. And in both cases, I think that our letter writers are being lied to. I think that both of these addicts are still in their addictions more than they are in their recoveries. And and that isn't to say that they aren't trying to recover. But I I, I think it's pretty clear to me, you know, this, this drug test showed uh, something that was surprising, but all of the other things, the long list of things uh, feeling like a snoop and a dog that you saw tell us that actually your husband is still in his addiction. He's still using. And what's interesting to me, maybe most telling of all, is his response to your snooping. Uh, if if he were truly, you know, not doing any of those things you accuse him of, I do think he would have had a lot more compassion for you because, of course, you know, you say, as, as patronizing as it is, isn't it a necessary evil? And the, and the, Matt, the fact is, yes, it's no fun to be uh, violating somebody's privacy, but this somebody isn't just anyone. He's somebody who has lied to you, as you've said, over and over and over again with passion and commitment, and he's betrayed your trust. It's it, So, of course, you're going to have to violate his privacy, and he should have 
compassion for that, I think. Dating an addict, I really think, you know, you're probably right that ever since you had that big confrontation with your boyfriend, uh, when you basically busted him for using, he said, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to do better. I'm going to, I'm not going to use. And, and it might be true that over this last month or so when he's enrolled in college and he's making progress and you haven't sensed he's high, it might be true that he's he's succeeding at staying clean for this time period. Right. The big question is, what's going to happen when he doesn't? What's going to happen when he fails? Is he going to come to you and fess up and say, I need more help? Or is he going to go underground again and wait till you have that pit in your stomach and wait till you do a little more investigative work? And and I think th- this applies to, to um, Snoop as well. Mm-hmm. You know, is is your husband coming to you and saying, I am going to tell you the truth, or is all truth revealed because you busted him? Right. And my gut sense with both of you, I think you both know, every truth that's been revealed has been because you found it, not because your partner was committed to the truth. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me on point for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future, five special episodes. Listen and follow On Point wherever you get your podcasts. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. So, Steve, we have a really wonderful guest in our studio with us right now, Ariel Levy, who is a staff writer at The New Yorker magazine and the author of the new memoir, The Rules Do Not Apply. I loved that book. I've been an Ariel Levy fan for a long time, way back to her first book, Female Chauvinist Pigs, Women and the Rise of Ranch Culture. Her work has appeared in The Washington Post, The New Yorker, Vogue, Slate, and The New York Times, among other places. Welcome, Ariel. It's great to be here. I love the show. Oh, thank you. We're really thrilled to have you. So we invited you here because I thought of you when when I was reading these letters. Unfortunately, I know why. (laughs) (laughs) 
So one of the things you wrote about in The Rules Do Not Apply is your relationship with your ex-wife, and she struggles with alcoholism. That's right. And I'm wondering first if you could tell us your story, your experience with your ex. Well, I mean, the thing that I can relate to immediately in both of these letters is the experience of bafflement. That and feeling like, am I crazy or am I right? To me, that is the quintessential experience of being married to an addict. Yeah. You know, constantly thinking, the person's acting weird. Am I being paranoid or insensitive? You know, am I not giving this person the space to have a flu? Am I not being um, compassionate and loving and supportive if this person's just overwhelmed from a workload? And But then that thing that she says in the first letter in uh, Dating Dating an Addict, you know, that feeling in your stomach yeah. of, I something's not right in Denmark, something's rotten. If you feel something's off and you're with an addict, guess what? Something's probably off. Probably more than you realize. Yeah. And sometimes you'll be wrong and sometimes you'll be right, but that's your life. So when she says, you know, am I crazy for marrying this person? Well, you're not crazy, but you are making a choice. Right. And that's what I want to say to both of these people. That was what I took from Al-Anon. Al-Anon is a support group for people who love addicts. But what I took from it was you, as the spouse, are choosing your life. And I think it's very easy. I mean, I certainly see it in feeling like a snoop and a dog. Look at the contortions she's putting herself through. It's a full-time job what she's doing, and she is choosing to do that. It is very easy to become consumed with analyzing the situation. When am I right? When am I crazy? Gathering evidence, you know? Mm -hmm. And the problem is, if you gather evidence and you're dealing with an addict, addicts lie. That's part of their disease. Mm -hmm. So even if you find evidence, this happened to me so many times I can't even count that I'd find a stash of beer cans and I'd be like, look, proof. Right. And my former spouse would say, oh, those must have been from before I quit. And then what do you do? Right. I mean, what do you say then? It's like you, right. there's no proof that's proof enough. So the only thing you can do is put the focus on yourself. You cannot control another person's behavior. All you can do is say, I am choosing to live with this person. I am choosing to spend all my time searching for evidence, analyzing the situation, building a case. What would happen if you retired from that job? Did you, at some point in your relationship with your ex, did you do that? Did you decide to give up? Or did you do that at the same time that you gave up on the relationship? The latter, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. I didn't go to an Al-Anon meeting until after we broke up. Why did you not go for a long time? And then why did you go? I didn't go for a long time because I think that um, I had this very strong feeling that it was her problem and not mine. I'm not the alcoholic. Why should I have to have treatment is, you know, why how I saw it. Mm-hmm. And actually, I got very angry when people would suggest it. I mean, maybe I didn't verbalize that. But inside, I just felt really self-righteous and irate. Like, I'm, I, you have no idea how much I'm dealing with already with this person. Why should I have to add that to the mix? Yeah. Once the, the marriage was over and I was off the day-to-day job of – you know, the self-imposed job. You know, she didn't ask me to be her keeper. She didn't ask me to go, you know, to constantly be checking and looking for evidence and building a case. I did that myself. Once I was off that job, what I was left with was just 
overwhelming sadness because I felt like, how come she didn't love me enough to quit? Mm-hmm. I mean, the fact of the matter is our marriage ended right after I had a baby who died. So I was so sad about so much. And then two weeks after that happened, um, she had, you know, uh, one of uh, many in a series of kind of alcoholic meltdowns. And I just was like, no, no way. I am lactating for a baby who's not here. It's my turn. I am going to suffer and everyone needs to take care of me. I am not doing your thing right now. I'm not doing it. And I was so angry that the focus of our, whatever you want to call it, healing at that moment wasn't on me, that it was on her recovery. And I couldn't stand the way I felt. So in desperation, because I was like, oh, what the hell, basically, mm-hmm. I went to an Al-Anon meeting. The thing to me that was a huge revelation that was like, oh, my God, this is the most liberating thing I've ever heard, is you need to surrender. This is not within your power. Mm-hmm. This is the, the, the part that, that concerns me, I think, about both letters. Mm-hmm. Um, and first of all, I want to say— all of us, I could, I think I can speak for all of us, is we understand why you think you might have power. Mm. Because, of course, mm. this is the way relationships work, right? right. We, we think like, oh, okay, you know, you make me a better person, we say about partners who we love. And we, and we, we think we can encourage people to, to make good choices or go to school or get a job or believe in themselves and write a book or whatever it is. It's, it's a kind of normal interaction in, in a loving, healthy relationship that you would influence each other, that Absolutely. you would be able to have. We're a team. But Addiction has different rules, and addiction is about the self not being in charge of the self. You know that there that's, is that that's there is the this, horror that's of right. being with an addict is that you yep. appeal to this person who you love with your whole heart, and you say, you know, this, you are hurting me. Why are you doing this? You're talking to the wind. That's what I found to be the desperately lonely part yeah. of loving an addict was that you're talking to this person you love, but the entity that's in charge of the behavior that hurts you is unreachable. Right. And in fact, your concern, uh, oddly enough, can make that person feel guilty. And then how do they deal with all that guilt? The addiction deals with it, right? They lie. They lie and they take part in self-destructive behavior because that's what makes them forget for a brief time all the guilt they're feeling and all the shame they're feeling. Well, and in dating an addict, this letter, I I do think also that sometimes— they behave for a while. Sure. You know, I think sometimes those those hard conversations can be a temporary fix for an addict. I'll, you know, I'll I'll stay straight, I'll stay sober for, you know, this this long. And this is what concerns me uh, dating an addict about you is you knew, you felt in your gut he was using and you were right. And then you had a big fight, and he said, oh, now, now I'm going to be good. And, and you don't feel that he's using, and you're probably right about that too. But I think the decision you need to be making right now and thinking about is, what about the next time? What about the next time you get that pit in your stomach? Because you're going to be right again. And it's probably going to happen again unless your partner is genuinely being transparent and very actively engaged in recovering, working on this addiction, not in a way that we're going to say, oh, that was in the past, honey, trust me. That's not how people recover. I'm curious, Ariel, what you think about um, the possibility of having a relationship with somebody 
who is in recovery. Are we being too hard on dating an addict's boyfriend? Well, I mean, I think you can, not just with an addict, I, I would say in my limited experience of love, all you should ever look at in a relationship is how do I feel in this reality? If you feel mystified and crazy and worried right. and baffled Anxious. and mistrustful. And what I'm hearing as an undercurrent in dating an addict is worried about the impact this will have on your child. Yeah. I am. I, this will have an impact on your child. I mean, there's just no question. <laughs> That's right. I mean, whoever you're with, I'm not saying something that does, it's not any deeper than what it is. Anyone you're with will have an impact on your child. Mm-hmm. Right. And if that man makes... That child's mother racked with anxiety and suspicion and insecurity and unhappiness, that too is going to have a profound effect on your on your son. I do think there's such a thing as recovery. I mean, of course you can have a relationship with someone who has battled addiction uh-huh. and is deeply committed to recovery and has done that work. I could be wrong, but I think you can kind of feel the difference. I, I know you can. And, you know, for me, one of the, the lead indicators is – you know, is the you know, the addict in recovery will be the person who is starting the conversations about drug use and trust and relapse and struggles. That is the person who is not being busted. That is the person who is saying to their partner, I need to go to a meeting every day this week because I've been triggered. I'm having temptations. I need to be honest with you. I'm struggling. You know, one really interesting question that uh, Snoop asked, what's the difference between my spouse's right to privacy and my right to know? Mm -hmm. And I would say, you know, in this, you are not in a normal relationship. He has less of a right to his privacy than he would have if he were not an addict who has a history of lying. You know, you're not saying he's going to meetings three times a week. You're not saying he's seeing a therapist. You're not saying any of these things that we associate with somebody who is in recovery. I also, I'm noticing that with dating an addict, you know, you say when he told you that he had been struggling on and off for years, you did two things. You accepted his past and you were very firm where you stood on the issue given that you have a two-year-old son who means more to you than every man ever will. Right. Okay. What you're saying there doesn't actually, it to me, it doesn't fully add up. He's saying he struggled on and off. You then you accept his past, but he's not saying this is the past. He's saying this is an ongoing struggle and then he proves it to you yeah. by continuing right. to struggle with it. Yeah, I mean That's right. another way of looking at it. It is, ain't over this right. struggle. Yeah. He, he, it's on and off still. Well, he promised this is from your letter dating an addict. He promised me that his addiction was behind him. I'm sure he wishes that were true. Exactly, yeah. but then he broke his promise. And then you stayed with him. Right. It's not just going to go away. It, it's something he would have to be confronting and not as a condition of your relationship, but for his own self. Like, it doesn't work when you say to an addict, if I catch you drinking again, I'm out. Right. What's that? Gonna, well, so then they're just going to have to work harder to hide. And you know this because— Because I did that. That's right. Said, right. Well, you know, if it happens again, I'm out. Guess what? Then what I did by doing that was basically saying to my spouse, lie better. Yeah. And suffer alone. Mm -hmm. No matter how isolated and enslaved you feel by your addiction, do it alone. I can't help you with it. In fact, I will leave you if you are honest with me. Yeah. And and that's that's exactly, I mean, we went straight to hell in a handbasket that way. Mm -hmm. So I would just say that 
you would need to see him actually taking on his recovery because he wants to, because he's ready to. Mm-hmm. That's when you can start to imagine a future with someone, I think. Whenever it's hard to end a relationship, w- what we're thinking about is all the times that it's happy, all the times that they're great. All the- and I think what we need to remember is, is a lot of times we do have to make choices that hurt us in the short term so we can be happier in the long term. Yes, both of you, if you end those relationships, are you going to be really sad? Is your heart going to be broken? Are you going to be devastated and angry and feel alone and wonder if you made the right choice? Yes. Mm. But pretty much always, when you leave a bad situation, I'm going to say always, at the end of that— At the end of the pain. At the end of that pain, and that pain does end. You you will look back and think, why did it take me so long? Right. I'm wondering if you have what your experience was, Ariel, in terms of your decision to finally leave your marriage. Well, look, I mean, there was a reason we were together for 10 years, you yeah. know, like we were really deeply in love. And I miss her. I'll always miss her. You know, I don't miss being married. I don't miss feeling the way I felt mm-hmm. in the marriage and feeling like a detective and like a like a scold, like a termagant, you know, mean mom. Yeah. Yeah. I think actually feeling like a snoop and a dog, what you're missing, you actually tell us this, although it's buried really in the letter, is you miss what, what your husband was like when you met him and he was clean and sober. And maybe what you were like before you were an amateur detective. Right. Before yeah. you were a snoop and right. a dog, you might yeah. have just been a person. Right, because, you know, as writers, <laughs> right. we always think about, and I guess it's a, a different version of, of facing that question of how does this relationship make me feel? I always think about when I talk with writing students, well, how much space on the page is dedicated to, uh, you know, a character who really matters or situation that really is, is emotionally important? How much space on the page in this letter is dedicated to your happiness? A single line, Mm. and it's this line. The anxiety punctuates my otherwise wonderful and fulfilling life with insanity. Okay, there we go. And it's worth just thinking about the extent to which what you really want is is the relationship you had at the beginning of your marriage, so that this letter is partly about facing that you might have to grieve the loss of that Mm -hmm. if you give up on your husband, but also think about how your life, the wonderful and fulfilling aspects of your life are being utterly devoured by what the rest of the letter represents, which is suspicion and fear and anxiety and this kind of crushing sense of of doubt and a sense that the only thing you can do is just try so hard and then you'll win the war for both of you. Right, yeah. You won't. You You can't. This is not a war you can win. And I want to say, you know, in case listeners are are hearing us wrong, uh, there are so many people who have made beautiful lives in recovery. People, oh, yeah. you know, former addicts who have vibrant, happy, loving, nurturing relationships, so their parents, they're, they have great partners, they they contribute to our world in, in many, many ways, and recovery is possible. The person I'm engaged to marry now is a recovered addict. Right. And I don't worry about that at all. And why? Because it's so much a part, it's so... um incorporated is what's that word that means integrated integrated but what do you mean by it's what's what's so integrated his recovery and the way he speaks about it and the steps that i know a person has to take and i'm not talking about the 12 steps even though god knows he did those you know but a long time ago i'm talking about things like radical honesty Mm -hmm. he'll say sometimes i'm getting into a negative thought pattern like uh uh-oh i hear myself like i'm 
I don't like the head I'm in right now. It's it's like way before we're anywhere near a kind of relapse. It's just like these are bad thought patterns that I learned through rehab and meetings and years of work and self-search are going to lead me down a bad road. Well, and he's engaged like like all of the other people I know who have who are re- recovered addicts is that he's engaged with his recovery in a way oh, my word. that isn't just not using drugs. Okay, that's that's, right. that's the other thing. That's yeah. right. So in in both of these letters what we have are people who are saying I'm not using anymore, so get off my back. Right, that's right. And that is not what recovery is. And any recovered addict will tell you that. And what's happening, of course, is in in both of your cases, but especially uh, like a snoop and a dog, is you're doing the work that your partner's not doing. Right. So you're the you're the one who's actually trying to heal and cure, and you know you're filling in all those blank spaces that your your the addict you love have has left blank because he's not engaged with trying to actually recover, and you're going to fail. And I hope you hear this from us right now. Because if you don't, you're going to have to suffer a lot longer until you do come to that moment of truth. I think that you've heard Ariel say in very clear, distinct terms that this is your life and it's up to you to make good decisions or bad decisions about it. And it's up to you to deal with those consequences of those decisions. We wish you luck. I sure do. Hi, listeners. We're opening up a hotline so you can leave us voicemails with your questions. Later in the season, we might use your questions in your own voice on the show. Don't worry, we'll keep you anonymous, but do be aware that anyone who can recognize your voice probably will. To leave a message, call our hotline at 929-399-8477. That's 929-399-8477. We hope to hear from you. Dear Sugars is produced by the New York Times in partnership with WBUR. Our producer is Alexandra Lee Young. Our editor and managing producer is Larissa Anderson. Our executive producer is Lisa Tobin. Our editorial director is Samantha Hennig. We recorded this show at Argo Studios in New York City with Paul Ruest. Our mix engineer is Josh Rogeson. Our theme song is by Liz Weiss. And other music is by the Portland band Wonderly. Please find us at nytimes.com slash dearsugars. And please send us your letters at dearsugars at nytimes.com. That's dearsugars, plural, at nytimes.com. <laughs>